Hello and welcome to the Heat Check Podcast, Miami Herald's Miami Heat Podcast. I'm David Wilson and I'm actually not on this episode, uh, but Anthony Chang couldn't bear to not have me introduce an episode. Uh, I was off this weekend, so taking a week off on the podcast uh, to let uh, two slightly more informed guys uh, handle hosting duties. Anthony, our Heat Beat writer, will be joined this week by Barry Jackson, one of our sports columnists here at the Herald to talk about uh, first impressions of Victor Oladipo and Nemanja Bielitsa, plus the Dwayne Dedman acquisition and what it all means for the Heat as they get ready for the stretch run. So I'll let them take it away from here. Welcome, everybody, to this week's Heat Check podcast. Thank you, David, for that wonderful introduction. Um, David is not with us this week. Um, he, can, he was not available, uh, but we couldn't go a week without his um, trademark open to the podcast. Um, so we don't have David this week, but we do have Miami Herald, do it all, breaking news extraordinaire, Barry Jackson. How are you, Barry? Hi, Anthony. It's good to be with you. I, I'm coming in just on a 10-day contract for this podcast today. We we appreciate it. This is this is a busy time for you, right? I mean, where does this, like, you know, the Martins obviously have begun, the Heater, you know, approaching the playoffs in a month. Um, Panthers are well into their season. Um, the draft is in a couple weeks. Uh, spring football. Where, where does this time of year rank for you as far as just how busy you are? Yeah, I would say traditionally probably one of the two busiest times of the year. But you know what's going to be even crazier? The start of Dolphins training camp coinciding with NBA free agency. Yeah, it's, a, it's first this year. So it's going to be great fun. It's, an, it's going to be an unusual calendar for sure. Um, <laughs> it's going to be different. Um, so you you covered um, last night's loss to the Grizzlies. I, I was off, but you you know, you you wrote the takeaways from the game. Um, it definitely was not um, the Heat's best defensive performance. Uh, it's funny because I think we all wrote stories about how, you know, defensive potential of this team and how good they've been playing on that end of the court and the way they've been trending on that end. They've been a top 10 defense for most of the season. Uh, but then they go out and they allow 124 points to the Grizzlies. The Grizzlies make 17 threes, shoot 55% from the field. Um, I, I guess what was your takeaway just from watching that game um, and the way the Heat, you know, the way the Memphis attacked uh, the Heat's aggressive defensive style. Yeah, it was pretty stunning. They couldn't take away anything from them, right? I mean, they couldn't take away the inside game with Valanciunas early. They certainly couldn't take away the threes. And the fact that uh, 11 for 15 for Memphis on corner threes, it comes just two days after Spolstra made the point that he thought the team had improved dramatically in terms of defending the three-point line. And this brought back memories and nightmares for Heat fans of wide open threes in the corners that we've seen far too often against this team over the last couple of years. And there's not really a lot to question Eric Spolster about, but I guess one thing you hear certainly from fans uh, is does Miami take the right defensive approach? Is Miami using the right scheme to defend three pointers? Spolster was asked about that last night. He responded with a predictable answer that he doesn't need to bet the wheel. It's more a case of execution than scheme. But you've looked at this closely, Anthony. Do you think there needs to be a significant scheme change where the Heat isn't switching as much, stays on their man, and defends the three-point line more closely, particularly those corner threes? I don't. I mean, there's different tweaks you can make. And, and as you know, Barry, like the regular season is so different than the playoffs. Like, you know, teams are usually going to stick to their schemes generally in the regular season just because there are so many games on so many nights, especially this season. In the playoffs, you make more tweaks. You, you kind of tailor it to the opponent. So I would expect there'll be different 
you know, there'll be obviously a different look if he would face the Grizzlies in the playoffs. Um, but, uh, you know, it's been working. Like, you look at the, the the bigger picture, they're a top 10 defense. You know, yes, Memphis made a lot of threes last night. There were a lot of open shots. Um, and, I, and I would argue that Memphis has the personnel, even though they're not really a great three-point shooting team, they have the personnel to kind of expose Miami's uh, weaknesses um, on defense just because they have one of the bigger centers in the league that forces the heat to double. Um, Valanchunas a good amount whenever he gets the ball in the post because he's good around the basket. And also they have John Morant, who's really good at getting into the paint. And that also forces, you know, rotations from the Heat's defense that leaves the weak side open. So they have two guys, you know, those two guys really put a lot of pressure um, on the Heat with the way Miami plays defense. So I don't think it's a huge surprise that he got swept by Memphis uh, this season just because I think their offense is a pretty good matchup for the Heat's defense with the way the Heat plays. Um, but I think for the most part, you know, this per- the personnel he has, especially right now with Victor and Trevor, um, you know, playing big minutes in that starting lineup with Jimmy and Bam, they have four guys who could switch. And if you have four guys who could switch, you got to switch. Like that's the way to, that's the way to play um, these modern day offenses. So um, yes, could there be less help? Could there be less traps off of screens, which kind of creates an advantage for the other team? you know, on the other side of the court, you know, if they can get out of that trap, maybe. Uh, but then again, the Heat has also had a lot of uh, success doing that. So it's a fine line. I, I think the answer is, while this is boring, is they just got to play better. <laughs> they got to play better on that end. Like they got to – I think Duncan said they didn't play with effort at times last last night. I think that's the one thing this defense requires is you need to make – you need to play with a lot of effort because there's a lot of running around and trying to cover different – open spaces, you know, with the way that he plays and the way that he traps and how aggressive they are. Um, so uh, to make a long answer short, I, I don't think they need to reinvent the wheel, as Eric Spoelstra would say, but, uh, you know, there are tweaks that can be made, and I expect in the playoffs, based on the opponent, um, you know, there'll be different looks that he can throw out. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. One strange dynamic of this season is how you've had now more than a dozen players set career highs or season high scoring against the Heat. I mean, you have random Zeller brothers. You have yeah. man. You have Dylan Brooks last night. Right. 23 in the third quarter alone. He had top 23 points just in five entire games this season. So there, there's certainly some random element to that. It's just odd that it's been a recurring theme of some random guy. And we're talking about luminaries here, although Brooks clearly is a good NBA player. But a lot of these players have been journeyman type players, the Garrison Matthews of the world. And we've seen it now for the last year. And I guess with the Heat's propensity for giving up open threes, maybe Miami is more vulnerable to those types of unusual outbursts by a player who can shoot good enough to be in the league, but doesn't have a great resume. So that that remained one theme last night. Uh, wanted to talk last night also about Oladipo. His, his best offensive game of the three last night, six or 14 from the field. I like that he took fewer threes, uh, took only four. And as I noted in a piece over the weekend, he was at his best offensively during that third-team All-NBA season 2017-18 when he shot threes only about a third of his field goal attempts. He's been over 40% in terms of percentage of shots that are threes. Of course, his three-point accuracy has only been in the 31-32% range. So I was glad to see he took fewer threes. He took only four last night, made one, airballed another one of them. Uh, So there were encouraging signs. There was that twirling, contorting layup 
in the fourth quarter, which was encouraging. We've seen certainly some moments defensively for steals in his first three games, but we haven't yet seen the all-star victor. What have the first three games uh, left you uh, with, with, with what kind of impression of what the Heat could be getting with him? It's, it's honestly kind of what I expected. And we've talked about this very, like, you know, he didn't play great defensively. I think nobody really played great defensively against Memphis, but he has looked like a good fit for the way that he plays defense. I think you could say that, you know, after the first three games, he, he fits with the way that he wants to play with switch, you know, switching pretty much every action and just his uh, ability to, to force turnovers um, on offense, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a work in progress. I, I thought it was encouraging last night that he did look a little more comfortable. He was getting more into the paint, which he didn't really do much of in the first two games. Um, and I also thought it was interesting, you know, just from the, I haven't looked into the numbers yet, but just from just watching the game, it seemed like he was playing more on the ball, like, Jimmy was more off the ball last night against Memphis and, and Victor was playing on the ball more, which uh, is, is interesting because I do think Victor is a better, better when he has the ball in his hands and Jimmy might be able just with his you know, basketball IQ and his ability to post up, play more off the ball and have success that way. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that, that continues, but yeah, efficiency is a question mark with him. Like I think he has 35, 30 points on 35 shots in the first three games. That's not ideal. He's going to have to get that up, you know, to, you know, you would want like 40 to 43%, 43% around there, that mark, just to be, you know, a respectable efficiency level. Um, and I think it's important that he hits, I still think it's important he hits his threes just because Bam and Jimmy, they're not known to make threes. They score most of their points in the paint. And, you know, Victor needs to help space the floor. Is he Duncan Robinson? No, but if he could hit, you know, 36, 37% of his threes, um, that would do wonders for the Heat's offense. And I think that's going to be important in the playoffs too. You know, when opponents are able to scheme against Miami's offense and they, they want to take away the paint, if Victor can hit a, a couple of threes a game, um, that would really help take some of the pressure off of uh, Bam and Jimmy. Yeah, he's two for 14 on three since he arrived. His three-point percentage ranks in the bottom five of NBA shooting guards this season. And what's going to be telling to me is, and you just hit on this point, if he can raise his three-point accuracy to 35 36% range, uh, his career high is 37.7, established during that great season he had three years ago. If he can get to that level, then I can project him long-term as a better fit here than I can if he remains in that 32 33% range on three. For sure. Because as you noted, if you're playing with Bam and Butler, you need at least a competent three-point shooter in that role for all of Victor's other gifts, and he's certainly an asset defensively. His speed and quickness have helped. But I do think that one telling thing we're going to see over these final 20-plus games plus playoffs is can he become at least an average three-point shooter? At this point, he's been well below average since coming back uh, from the quad tendon injury a year ago. And also you mentioned he was on the ball more last night. Uh, so far, three games, 12 assists, 10 turnovers. His turnover numbers in his first three heat games have been three, four, and three. Certainly have to attribute some of that to just getting used to a new set of teammates. So you don't want to rush judgment on the ball handling. But if you are going to have him on the ball more, there has to be fewer of the types of careless turnovers that we've seen from him in these first couple of games. So I'm with you. I would say too early to judge the first three games 
uh, you probably have to give a grade of, of incomplete where uh, I think after 10 games, you'll start to be able to make some judgments. But at this point, I guess what's fair to say is we have not seen the all-star Oladipo yet. And whether we do will be one of the great intriguing mysteries of the last couple months of the season. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting, you know, that I wanted to point out this is that the three games that he's played in the heat's offensive rating when he's on the court is one Oh one, which is like really, really bad. Um, and then when he's off the court in those three games, their offensive rating is one fourteen point nine. That's a interesting, that's significantly better. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, again, it's, it's, three games. So, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to read too much into it, but the heat has not been good offensively when he's been on the court. They've been good defensively. They've been pretty good defensively, especially if you take out last night and you just look at the first two games, they've been elite defensively when he's playing, but offensively, it just hasn't, they haven't found that efficient formula yet. Um, it might take a while, but you know, like, it's like you said, they have what five or six weeks left before the playoffs. They don't have much time. There's not, there's not much practice time. Um, so I think it's going to be really intriguing to see if they're able to iron, you know, those issues out because they need to be a more efficient offensive team and he's going to play big minutes in the playoffs. Um, and if they're going to continue to be an inefficient you know, team when he's playing, that's going to be a big problem. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that's definitely worth monitoring. Um, another guy that, you know, that's that's fairly new, not as new as Victor, Trevor Ariza. He's kind of set, settled into that. Uh, starting four role, you know, they've been looking for that type of player um, pretty much since Jay left last offseason. They tried it with, you know, they tried to replace him with Mo Harkless. That didn't work out, obviously. Um, then Kelly Olenek kind of settled into that starting four role, uh, more of a too big look next to Bam in that heat front court. Um, and that that worked fine. You know, they're, they're, it wasn't perfect, but Kelly played well in that spot uh, for the most part. Uh, but then Kelly's traded and you know, they bring, they get Trevor Ariza who fits, you know, who's more of a Jay Crowder type mold and is able to play that switching style of defense. Um, it can space the floor as well. Um, what, what have your, what have been your initial impressions of Trevor and, and kind of how he's fit into everything? Yeah. Very impressed from a defensive standpoint, uh, players who he's defending are shooting only 38% from the field, 36 for 94. Those players shoot 46.2% when they're defended by anyone other than Ariza. So that's an 8% difference. So the fact that he's been able to come off the street, not having played in an NBA game in a year and be at such a high level defensively is encouraging. I do think we have to be cautious in terms of expectations because of his age. Uh, Last night, obviously, uh, no impact on the offensive end. But I think we sort of have to brace ourselves for this because this is a guy at the tail end of his career. This is not uh, Jay Crowder, who's still in the prime of his career, who you can go into every game assuming you're going to get something on both ends of the court. With Ariza, I think that would be a risky expectation to have. Now, all that being said, he was the best available stretch for option out there that you could realistically get without giving up any asset in return. All it took, obviously was Myers Leonard, who wasn't going to play anyway. Uh, To me, Harrison Barnes would have been a great fit as a stretch four. Uh, And we talked about him off air, of course, Anthony, but the Kings simply never made him available uh, before the trade deadline. Boston had interest in him as well. So as far as who was available as a stretch four, this to me uh, was the obvious name. And you just have to ride with the fact that there are going to be some games where he's productive and some games 
as a player at the tail end of his career, he's not going to be productive. Uh, but I think we're going to see him as the long-term starting four. Is there anyone else on the roster that, that you could even see being an option to start alongside Bam at this point, knowing that Ocala, you know, sort of been in mothballs and health and safety, uh, you know, league COVID uh, over the last couple of weeks? No, I mean, I, I was going to say KZ, but realistically, that's probably not going to happen. Um, he's, you know, KZ's role has fluctuated throughout the season. Um, he's been inconsistent. It seems like he's, you know, still learning the league and, and just developing as a player. Um, and you know that Eric Spolcher wants veterans out there. He wants guys who have experience and who are going to play, you know, high basketball IQ and play smart and be in the right spots. And that, that's kind of what Trevor is. I mean, he's, you know, in his 17th NBA season, he's been around the NBA. He's won a championship. He's played this role pretty much for the past like 10 years, this small ball forward role where he spaces the floor and is just a really good defender. Um, and I agree, like, you know, he's, he's, I think, 35 and he was off for a year pretty much. He didn't play in a game um, for a year before he got to the Heat. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I'm somewhat surprised, I guess I would say, that he's playing such a big role already. Um, I knew he would play, um, but I didn't know he was just going to be the starting four, like two games into his heat tenure after, after missing a year. So that, that kind of surprised me. I know the trades impacted things, um, but I think he is, you know, while he may not be Jay Crowder and I know everyone just wants the next Jay Crowder on this roster. Um, he's the closest they've got and the closest they've had all season, because again, Mo Harkless did not work out, you know, KZ, you know, he's had some nice moments, but he hasn't been that. He's not that yet. Uh, but Trevor gives you that. He's, a, he's an efficient three-point shooter. When he's on, he's really good from the corners. Um, I think he's shooting like over 40% from the corners in the past four or five years. Um, and then defensively, while you can't maybe guard up as well as Jay because Jay's a bigger body, um, a little stronger build, um, he could still defend pretty much every position. I think he was defending Nerdin so well one game. Uh, he was defending Damian Lillard another game. Um, so, you know, he gives you that, that dynamic, um, that dynamic option on the defensive end that the Heat have been, uh, missing for most of the season. So he's, he's going to be important for sure. And I think he unlocks a lot of the Heat's potential on both ends. Um, but I agree with you, you know, you can't count on him to score, go four of seven on threes every game. Like there are going to be nights where he just doesn't have it. Um, and you might need to find offense, you know, in other, other places. One thing we've seen over the last year that's been reinforced to both of us is the fact that there are very specific criteria that Eric Spolster is looking for now to be able to play alongside Bam Adebayo, to be a player that Spolster is comfortable pairing with Bam. You have to be an efficient three-point shooter or at least a formidable threat, right, beyond the three-point line. You have to be able to switch defensively. You have to be able to defend wings uh, to a certain extent. Now, uh, you know, Kelly obviously wasn't nearly as effective in that side, uh, you know, in, in that part of the game as Trevor is. Uh, Trevor, the, clearly the better defender, but it appears as though this is the way Spolster yeah. wants to go in this new era of NBA basketball to essentially have a power forward who was previously a small forward. And it makes you wonder, will there ever be a time where Spolster is comfortable playing a Chua without a bio? They've played seven minutes this season. Uh, the Heat's a minus seven in those minutes. And we've consistently seen over the last few years, Riley publicly tell us that he thinks two bigs can play together. 
He was a proponent of playing Whiteside and Bam together. Spolster was never comfortable doing that. And he told us in November, he thought Precious and Bam can play together at times. But I just wonder now, will that ever be a reality? Clearly, one of them has to develop a three-point game if that's going to happen. Uh, Bam might be capable of it, but there's been no urgency on the Heat side to push him toward developing a three-point game. And with Precious, one of his former Memphis assistants, Cody Topman, told me that he thinks uh, he could be a 36% three-point shooter in the league. He shot jumpers effectively at Memphis, uh, but we just haven't seen it here because he hasn't been given that opportunity. At this point, do you think, and I know ever is a big word and, you know, and projects a long period of time, but do you think, Anthony, that we will ever see Precious and Bam as the starting front court tandem of the Miami Heat? Um, I don't think so. Although there is maybe some hope only because, like you said, they both have somewhat of potential to, to develop that three-point shot. I, I spoke to Precious earlier in the season um, about it, about that, and he said that you know during his workouts, you know whether it's at heat practices or pre-draft workouts or off-season workouts, I think he said he made around 70 or 60 to 70 out of 100 threes um, in drill work, which is pretty good for a guy who doesn't shoot threes in the NBA. Um, so he definitely has the potential and upside to, be, to develop that eventually um and then bam you know we've seen him develop that mid-range shot and if he could extend you know we've saw chris bosh also you know go from mid-range and take a few steps back and start becoming a a quality three-point shooter so he he made that evolution uh bam definitely has this you know the the talent to make that evolution as well um but i just i don't know i i would say no only because i don't think either of them is ever going to be a good enough three-point shooter to complement each other and make that work offensively i'm intrigued by that i'm intrigued defensively with them but i just don't think offensively it could work especially when you have jimmy who also really doesn't shoot threes it's just too many non-shooters in the court in today's nba right and i'm just looking back at a story i wrote talking to that memphis assistant cody toppert back in november where he said that there's no question in his mind uh that quote precious has the upside to be 36 to 38 percent spot up three-point shooter in the nba he's made some fundamental mechanical adjustments to increase his efficiency beyond the arc uh but yet there's been i guess a belief on the heat side that they don't want to put too much on his plate they don't want him to force his game to the perimeter when he's just learning the nba but if the heat had a sense before the draft that Precious was not going to be able to play any sort of regular minutes with Bam, then it's, I think, fair and natural to wonder why didn't they go in another direction, whether it was Desmond Bain, who was his pure shooter in this draft. We saw him last night, whether it would be Emmanuel quickly. Now, the, the, the Heat obviously has done an exceptional job with the draft over the last four years. But I do think moving forward, uh, when they consider any power rotation player, they have to ask themselves the question, is this a player that Eric Spolster would be comfortable playing alongside Bam Adebayo? And at this point, I think both of our suspicion is that it's not terribly likely that's going to happen with Precious, at least certainly not in the coming months. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. Um, I, I guess the other side of that is, you know, at 20, you just want a rotation player at that. I mean, obviously you want a starter, but a rotation player, you'll be happy with a guy who can give you consistent minutes. And I think the thinking was with, with Precious, at least, at least, you know, in the first few years of his career is, you know, we need some, but we need to take some of the pressure off of Bam. He didn't have that backup big who can play, the, you know, play the way that he wants 
um, in that switching style and just athletic and guard multiple guys, um, puts pressure on the rim. They didn't have that. Precious, you know, if he could get on track, has that skill set to play that type of role where he can give you kind of a little bit of what Bam does in those 13, 14 minutes that Bam's on the bench every game. Um, that hasn't been the case lately. I know Precious has struggled. Um, but, you know, I, I, th- I think there's a place for Precious. You know, he's obviously limited by not being able to play with Bam because Bam plays most of the game. So that limits Precious to 10 to, you know, 10 to 13 minutes, 10 to 14 minutes a game or so. Um, but, you know, th- there is upside there. Uh, while it's hard to envision it right now, um, the Heat have to think that there's a chance that they might be able to play together at some point in the next few seasons if, if they drafted him, I would think. But at the very least, you know, if he can develop and maybe with a one full offseason under his belt, this season's kind of been a rush for Precious. He could develop into that player who they can count on to, to be that big body in those 13, 14 minutes. I think that's that, that should be enough in the 20th pick. I don't know. Do you agree, Barry, with that? Or is, am I putting the standards I, I too low? With that. I found it interesting that Silva had surpassed him at times before Silva was dealt uh, in a pre-trade deadline move. And I also find it interesting that it's clear now that Bialitsa is the backup center yeah. for Spolstra over Precious. And Precious is still getting a few minutes here and there. A couple of games ago, he played as the first big off the bench behind Bam in one half. Uh, Bialitsa played in the other half. But clearly, Bialitsa has surpassed Precious, and you get an entirely different kind of player uh, with Bielitsa in the game compared to Precious. Now, what's encouraging about Bielitsa, obviously, he's got a chemistry with Jimmy Butler. They played together. He's got a chemistry with Dragic. They're longtime friends. He's obviously going to be able to spread the floor. I guess what's discouraging, but not a surprise, is that he's not any kind of defender. So far in his uh, first week and a half with the Heat, the player he's guarding is shooting 56% from the field. 18 for 32. He's obviously not a shot blocker. So you just have to accept the, uh, you know, the good with the bad with him. And at least, you know, that on nights, his offensive game is working. He's going to be an asset in that regard. He's a skilled passer. He's a creative big. Uh, And it's going to be interesting to me once Deadman is in here, uh, which we expect in the next couple of days, is there any possibility Dwayne Deadman surpasses both Bielitsa and Precious as the big of choice off the bench. I would be surprised if that happened initially, but Anthony, could you see Deadman maybe being the big of preference in certain matchups? Like if you're going up against Philadelphia and Bam picks up two early fouls defending Embiid, could you see Spolster at that point maybe go to Deadman, the seven-footer, instead of Bielitsa or Precious if Embiid is still in the game? Yeah, I can. I, I think... I think it's going to be a. I think Denman's going to be a situational player at this point, and I think he will get some minutes in certain situations. You know, whether it's against Embiid or even maybe like last night, he would have helped against Valanciunas or in a playoff series that that has you know against a team with big lineups. Um, I think he will help, um, but I do think Bialica is intriguing only because yeah, he's not Kelly Olynyk, and I know that comparison's been made a ton since he arrived here. Uh, even by Spolstra and Riley, they, they call him the facsimile of Kelly Olenek. Um, But he gives you kind of what Kelly gave you a little bit to a certain extent. Um, and before Kelly was traded, uh, if you remember, Barry, Precious was already falling, slipping out of the rotation. You know, Silva was playing in some games. But for the most part, when Bam went to the bench, you know, Spolstra was using Kelly Olenek as the lone big on the court around 
you know, whether it's Andre Godala and three other shooters or just smaller lineups where, where Kelly's the only big on the court. And those lineups did well. Um, Jimmy plays really well when you give him a lineup of basically four floor spacers and kind of give him the ball up top and let him work, kind of like LeBron did, you know, during the big three era. He plays well in those groupings. So I think Bielitsa works. Yes, there are some defensive shortcomings. Um, I guess one positive thing about the way that he plays defense is they can cover for each other. They double a lot. They trap a lot. So Bielitsa is not actually going to be on an island against these these big centers. So that helps him. And he mentioned that when we asked him about it, that, that he feels a little more confident in that role just because of the way that he plays defense. Um, so I, I think Bielitsa will stick as kind of the Heat's backup center in most situations. Uh, but I think there will be times where we see whether it's Precious or Deadman um, go in there and try to, you know, try to play against more physical players and maybe Bielitsa is having trouble against. Yeah, I, I agree with that. To me, one interesting thing about Deadman is how do you go from signing a four-year, $40 million contract uh, that he got from Sacramento summer of 2019 to 19 months later being out of the league altogether, which is what he was. Basically, uh, he had two really good years in Atlanta. He parlayed that into that $10 million a year deal with the Kings. Uh, and then his three-point shooting totally regressed once he joined Sacramento. He had been yeah. shooting 30% from threes in his two years with Atlanta. He joins the Kings. He shoots 14 for 71 on threes to begin his Kings career. That's 19%. Then they ship him back to Atlanta. The three-point shooting gets no better. Once he returns to the Hawks, he goes eight for 36 on threes. Hawks then traded him to Detroit uh, November 20th uh, of this season, and the Pistons waived him four days later, and he's been out of the league for four months. So uh, he doesn't need to be an effective three-point shooter to be a uh, break glass if needed type big for short periods of time for Miami because he's a good rebounder, uh, can block some shots. So if you only need him for occasional four or five minute stretches when Bam is in foul trouble or in particular matchups, it's not essential that Deadman goes back to being the 38, 37% three-point shooter that he was for the Hawks for those two years. It'd be ideal if he could, but even, even if he doesn't give you that, uh, he's still a guy who was averaging 12 rebounds, 1.9 blocks for 36 minutes during his last NBA season, 2019-20. So I think he was probably the best option out there uh, to fill that 14th uh, spot on the roster. Was there anyone else that would have intrigued you uh, among available guys, among the uh, the Thon makers of the world? I guess Thon maker, as far as, you know, guys who were available just because of his, you know, perceived upside and, and potential at that spot, um, it, it seems, and he's still young. It seems like we've everyone's kind of been waiting for Thon Maker to figure it out. And uh, you know, if you're the Heat and he's he's out there and, and you're going for upside, he would have been the guy. But I think as far as guys who can impact right now, like have an impact this season, um, if Deadman you know comes in in shape and can you know learn the Heat system pretty quickly, I think he could have he could have an, a, an immediate impact. He's more of a I don't want to say you know he's. He's had his struggles in the league, but he's more of a proven player, I would say, than, than Don Maker. Um, but I, I was kind of, I don't know if you were surprised, but I was i was a little bit um, surprised that they signed for the rest of the season. I kind of thought that they were going to sign um, the 14th player to a 10-day contract, only to see who would become available this week before the, the Friday playoff eligibility deadline, uh, whether it was DeMarcus Cousins after his 10-day with the Clippers or, you know, a guy like I know, this has been a joke on Twitter, but even a guy like Hassan Whiteside, if he was going to get bought out, um, I, I was a little surprised that they committed long term. Did that 
did that surprise you or, or, or just because it, w- it was Deadman you thought they had to commit to him to sign him uh, for him to agree to a deal? I would say mildly surprised, but there was never any chance of Whiteside returning because as we both know, Spolstra yeah. not want him on the team. He had to deal with him being on the team for a year when he didn't want him here before the Heat was finally able to trade him uh, during the Jimmy Butler sign and trade when Portland uh, took on his contract. So there wasn't really any anticipation of anyone better emerging on the buyout market. How about and, Marcus Saul, Barry? Sorry to interrupt. Right. Yeah, Gasol would have yeah. been a possibility. He reiterated last night, even though he's going to leave the Lakers starting lineup once Drummond gets a new toenail, uh, just reiterated <laughs> last night that uh, he's not going to make waves. He's okay being in Los Angeles, even as Drummond's backup. So it's not uh, clear at all that he's going to get a buyout. It looks likely as of this taping that he's probably going to remain in Los Angeles. And remember on the Cousins thing, the Heat needed a very specific type of big for this 14th spot on the roster. They needed someone who would be happy and content, even if he went five or six games without playing. Uh, because again, this is a very specific role where you need him in certain matchups against big front lines. Uh, perhaps if Bam is in foul trouble, perhaps if Bam is sidelined for a few games with an injury. Uh, and it, for me, it would have been difficult to envision DeMarcus Cousins accepting that role of going a week or two without playing, then coming in for 14 minutes, then going another week without playing. So to me, Deadman uh, made the most sense of all the choices. Now, last night, I got, I have to tell you this. Last night, went to Publix, looked on a milk carton, and I saw Kendrick Nunn's picture. <laughs> and and I, I'm wondering now, are we ever going to see Kendrick Nunn in a Miami Heat game again if there is not an injury? I don't know. I, I don't. If there's not an injury, I would say no. That's yeah. It's kind of crazy because before his injury, before his he sprained his ankle. I think he had started the like 23 straight games. So then he sprains his ankle, and when he comes back, he's totally out of the rotation. He's not even coming off the bench because Victor's Victor's playing. And I don't know if there's room for him. I mean, you have Victor, you have Goron, you have Tyler, um, and then you have you know all the wings that he plays and, and their power rotation. There really isn't room for Kendrick, unfortunately, because he has been playing pretty good this season. Uh, he's been a you know pretty reliable offensive option for most of the year. I, I would say one of their more consistent. Uh, offensive options, you know, during certain stretches of the season. So, um, yeah, that is something that has kind of gotten overlooked as we, you know, break down the the newcomers and Victor and how he looks and and Bielitsa and Trevor Ariza and just everything that's going on. Kendrick Nunn is totally out of rotation. We haven't seen him play in about a couple of weeks since the injury. And I don't know if he'll really ever get back into the rotation unless there's an injury. Yeah, the, the one other time I could see him playing would be if Dragic and Oladipo both sit out part of a back-to-back. Then we yeah, that's it, right. Kendrick or Gabe Vincent getting minutes then. But to me, the worst thing that happened to Kendrick was him not being included in the Houston trip for Oladipo because he would have played a ton there. He probably would have averaged 16 to 18 points a game. He would have gone into restricted free agency this summer with either the Rockets then – uh, willing to sign him to a nice deal or with other teams having interest to sign him to an offer sheet. Now there still might be interest in Kendrick Nunn, even if he plays only five more games the rest of the season, but this has to hurt him obviously going into free agency. And uh, you know, one thing that neither of us would expect, but it's still interesting to toss around on a podcast type form would be this. How bad offensively would Oladipo need to be 
for Spolster to consider giving any of his minutes to Kendrick Nunn. And again, we're not predicting this. We're not anticipating this. But if Oladipo uh, repeatedly gave you four for 16 nights, is there any point where you could see Spolster saying, well, obviously I'm going to keep playing Victor, but maybe I'm going to give Kendrick a chance in some of those minutes? Or will that simply not happen unless Oladipo is sitting out the second half of a back-to-back? Yeah, I, I, I think Kendrick may get some of his minutes in those situations, um, but I still think Victor would start, keep a starting role, probably would play still over 20, 25 minutes a game. And maybe Kendrick gets eight, seven, eight minutes, uh, seven minutes stretch to, to come off the bench and play. I, I could see that, but I just think that he really need to, you know, as important as this season is in the playoff run and the Heat, you know, the Heat want to win a championship, all that stuff. Um, it's important that the Heat sees what they have in Victor. You know, they, they got to use this time wisely. They have six weeks of the regular season, maybe, you know, as few as two weeks, maybe in the playoffs, if, if they if they lose in the first round, to, to determine what they want to do long-term with Victor. He's going to be a free agent this year. So I don't think they can afford to just keep him out of the rotation or even give up a starting spot to Kendrick just because um, they need to see, you know, where Victor stands health-wise, if there's room for him to improve, and if, you know, he really is – can if he really could return to the player he was a few years ago before the injury, all that stuff they have to, they have to find out, you know, in a short period of time. And I think that has to factor into the decision when you're trying to, um, you know, decide who play who gets those guard minutes, you know, whether it's between Kendrick uh, and Victor. Right. Yeah. I, I feel the same way as you do. You have to be able to have a large enough sample size to make a major financial decision on Oladipo this summer. Do you want him on your cap for the next two or three years at a large number, or do you want to move on? And the only way you're going to make that determination is by playing him. Now, Kendrick can fairly make the point, look, I've been a more efficient offensive player than Oladipo this year. I should not have gone from 28 minutes a night to zero minutes a night. That's a reasonable and fair point. But the Heat can come back with this. They, they can say, well, we'd rather gamble at this point on the ceiling of a guy who's been all NBA defense before, who's been third team all NBA period as recently as three years ago. And as you said, we need to know what we have in him because he's going into for agency this summer. So I think both sides can make reasonable points. It can feel unfair to Kendrick and in a way it is. But at the same time, you totally understand that the uh, uh, Heat's point on this. Uh, so it looks like we pretty much have a rotation at this point, right? I mean, this is the first time all season where you can say there's a clear cut order of players off the bench. And I guess the variables will be, we'll see Vincent or none on nights that Goron and Victor are rested, which as Spolster said, will never be referred to in this organization as load management. And maybe certain nights, instead of Bielitz is the first big off the bench, off the bench, we might see Precious or we might see Deadman. But beyond that, is there any other potential rotation changes or flexibility that you see on this roster? Um, the, the big picture of the rotation, no. But I think the fourth quarter rotation is going to be interesting um, just because the Heat has a few different ways it could go. Um, so I, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing kind of how that evolves just because um, I think these next six weeks will, will play a role and kind of determining which way Eric Spolstra wants to go in most cases, you know, down the stretch of games. Um, last year, obviously, Goran played a huge role down the stretch in games. Um, will he this season? I mean, with Victor on the team, I, I would think Victor is going to play in the fourth, most of the fourth quarters. Obviously, Jimmy and Bam, 
And then Andre has played the entire fourth quarter, I think, most games this season, and so has Tyler Hero. So um, there are a lot of options, you know, spoke and turned to um, late in games uh, to throw out there. And I don't know if we'll have a set lineup he likes to go to. Um, I think last year was Bam, Andre, Jimmy, um, Tyler, and Goran. Those were the five he went to most of the time uh, late in games in the playoffs. I don't know if he can get to a, a set five this year just because there are so many um, different options, um, and it might just depend on matchups and, and who's playing well that night. Right. I agree with that. And it's interesting now, as Butler said, Spo now has the option to go to an all-defense lineup, obviously with Bam and Butler and Ariza and Iguodala yeah. Depot, or an all-offense lineup, or most likely a combination of the two. Yeah, he has – I mean, that's a good that's a good problem to have, but – you know, he's going to have some tough decisions to make if the roster's healthy, because like you said, they have a reason on, they also have Duncan who Duncan really doesn't play much in fourth quarters. Um, but he, he has been shooting so well and they have such a good offense when he's playing the metrics are off the charts when he's playing um, uh, the offensive metrics are off the charts when he's playing. So you have to factor that into it, into the, you know, the choice as well. So, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's a good problem to have. There are a lot of options, um, but I just don't think he's gonna have a set five, um, like he did last year, just because um, it, he 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 does have a lot of guys who probably deserve to be in their late games. It's just you can only throw five out there, obviously. No question. I'm so interested in seeing how this team will do against formidable opponents in the next week and a half at Portland, at Phoenix, home against Brooklyn, which might still be without Harden for that ABC national game a week from Sunday, but a strong opponent even without him, obviously. So we're really going to get a sense of how good this revamp roster is, I think, starting Sunday night in Portland. And heck, don't overlook uh, Thursday's game against the Lakers. We know how much the Heat has struggled against teams without superstars this year. And the Lakers have won four of their nine games with both Anthony Davis and LeBron sidelined over the last two weeks. Yeah, that, that's not going to be an easy game. Los Angeles still has a really, really good defense. Their offense obviously is not as good um, now that LeBron and Anthony Davis are out, but their defense has been excellent. So um, it, it's not going to be just because, you know, LeBron and Anthony Davis are out, you know, that's going to be a gimme. Uh, he will have to earn that one. But to, to kind of go off of what you just mentioned, what, where do you think, Barry, the Heat stand in the Eastern Conference? I know they, they enter the day right now as we record this on Wednesday afternoon, sixth place in the East, uh, tied with Charlotte, who's has a tiebreak over Miami. They're a game behind Atlanta at four, and then obviously the top three in the East, Philly, Brooklyn, Milwaukee. Where, where do you think that he stand in the conference um, after the new additions? I think at their best, they're the fourth best team in the conference. Uh, but if they're not at their best, I could easily see the case being made for Atlanta and Boston having more material, despite the Celtics struggles. I think anybody could make the case that Boston or Atlanta is as talented. Uh, so to me, I see them anywhere from four uh, to six in the conference. Obviously, if you're seventh, you're in the play in tournament and that's a, a just one bad game and you're out in those circumstances. Yeah. Right. So it's really important to stay in the top six. I'd be disappointed if they're not fourth. Yeah, I would say if they're not in that four or five matchup, I would be disappointed. Right. Like I, yeah. they, they have to be in that four or five matchup. Either, you know, four obviously is the is the optimal spot because you have home court, um, which actually matters this season. They're not playing in a bubble. Um, but, uh, you know, I think if they're six or you know seven and have to play in the play in game, play in game, that's going to be a huge disappointment. Um you know, for a team that represented the East in the finals last season. 
And also, I would say, while Brooklyn is probably the most talented team in the Eastern Conference um, with their three stars, I still think the worst matchup for the Heat is Philadelphia. Just because I of Joel Embiid. Size. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of like what you saw against Memphis. They have that combination that really hurts the Heat's defense, where they have a, a big, who's even better, obviously, than Valanciunas and Embiid, who can do so much and can really put pressure in the paint. And then they also have a guy in Ben Simmons who could penetrate and put pressure on the defense in the paint as well. Um, and then they have a bunch of shooters now. So that Brandon combination Curry, is, yeah. That, yeah, that combination would really, I think, give the Heat. Uh, a lot of trouble. I, I agree. And I'd make this one final point. To me, there'd be no excuse now for Miami to finish behind Charlotte in the standings with Gordon Hayward out for an extended period of time. Knicks are obviously really well coached, but to me, it would be unacceptable to finish behind the Knicks because the Heat simply has more material. If you finish behind Atlanta and Boston narrowly, that's one thing. It would be disappointing, but it wouldn't yeah. be embarrassing in my mind. Uh, but to me, with the talent they have on this roster, fourth should be the realistic expectation and certainly no lower than sixth. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Um, all right. I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you, Barry, for coming on this week and filling in for David. we got to have you on more often. I know you're busy, but you always provide a very, very good insight and just analysis of what's going on with the Heat. So thank you. Thanks, Anthony. Great being with you. Yes. Follow Barry at, at FLA Sports Buzz and follow me at Anthony underscore Chang, C-H-I-A-N-G. Um, and you can read our work and our colleagues' work at MiamiHerald.com. Until next week.